you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. We bring you community discourse about the amazing organizations and people who come together to help make Edmonton strong. Every month, we share stories from spaces where endowments and communities intersect. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink, and today we have a special guest right here in the studio, Marty Panis. Hello. Marty, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a parent, I am a student, I am a runner, I'm a professional, I am transgender, I am a woman, I'm a daddy, I'm all of these things. And uh, a lot of my work is about creating safe and inclusive environments uh, in the healthcare industry and in our in a greater society, and I use she, her pronouns. Thank you very much for introducing that. That's a great introduction to what we're here to talk to you about today, which is it's been a year now since the federal government issued apology to LGBTQ mm-hmm. individuals here in Canada. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with that? Yeah, I was invited by the LGBTQ Secretariat, uh, Randy Boisano, MP for Edmonton Centre, uh, to be part of a committee that uh, helped draft the uh, apology. And it, it was a group of people from a- across Canada, all with different experiences and different community relationships. And what was really evident in those first few days is that we as we do at any table we sit at is to look at the table and see who's missing. So the first part of that work was to ensure all of those voices were brought in. And so a lot of that process meant you know, listening to testimony, um, reading many of the reports that had already been written for the last you know, 30, 40 years that we are already aware of some of the injustices that were experienced. And so through that, uh, we continued to get to a place where we'd help develop the apology. So uh, what did it mean to you when you heard that this was going to happen? Yeah, you know, for somebody particularly who transitioned later in life, many of the things that were being addressed were uh, things I would not have experienced. And I really had to do some thinking about whether I was even the right person to be at the table. But I recognized that it's it's not just about my story, but really listening to all those other stories and the, and the connections that I did have. I think it was really important for our community. I remember speaking with somebody from the Indigenous community who was part of the apology that, that Prime Minister Harper had issued to the community many years prior to, and just asking her what it meant for her to participate before I agreed to even be part of it. And she said, you know, when, when the Prime Minister gets up to read the words that, that you helped draft that other people needed to hear is one of the most uh, powerful moments of your life. And she was right. It, it was something I will never forget. Um, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, you know, quite often in, in the original draft, we, we heard the acronym, you know, LGBTQ2S, and I suggested that we need to hear the words, we need to hear the words gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, two-spirit, and we need to hear those words often throughout. And so when he got up to speak the first time, said all of those words. Mr. Speaker... Today we acknowledge an often overlooked part of Canada's history. Today we finally talk about Canada's role in the systemic oppression, criminalization and violence against the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and two-spirit communities. You need to hear yourself in those words and not just an acronym because we need to, you needed to really humanize it. And that's the first thing that I noticed is that those words were said and said often. And that, that really meant something to be heard that way. 
Now, you said you transitioned later in life and you weren't sure if you were the right person. Now, you aren't saying that it was easy for you. Oh, no, no. You know, when I, when I think about the apology itself, yeah, I transitioned at uh, the age of 42. I'm 47 now. I mean, I, I certainly struggled with my gender in the closet for decades before that. Uh, but when I think about many of the injustices I, that I heard were, you know, being removed from the military, uh, being investigated, losing jobs. I remember actually many stories that were very similar to, to this where, you know, somebody's in the military in a same-sex relationship um, and being very clandestine about it, right, being very secretive about it, but uh, not re realizing that people had suspicion. Uh, they were followed everywhere by the RCMP or CSIS into bars, into their homes, wherever, and if they went anywhere near where known um, gay or lesbian people were to hang out, then will be brought in for questioning, which many were. And, and that questioning could be like quite literally under the light for many hours asking incredibly intimate details about sexual behaviors with uh, people of, of their same gender. And to a point where the, the finding was, yes, they were in a, in a same-sex relationship and were then removed from their, their posting. And, you know, this is something that's impacted so many. And I, I remember one particular person who said, you know, got a new career, um, everything is going really great. But every time they're asked into the office by their manager is that fear of, is this that moment? Is this that time where now I'm going to lose everything because of who I am? And so that never was the case, but that fear has never gone away. And that has impacted, you know, the lives of these people for, and continued to still do so. Those things, I, clearly, I had not experienced before, and, and many in our communities have. And so those were the experiences I thought of, you know, these aren't my lived experiences, but we got to hear them quite quickly and knew that, that we were the right people for this job. And that's really where the apology lies, is where the Canadian government has been treating individuals inconsistently, whether you're LGBTQ or not LGBTQ, you're getting different treatment. And that's really where that lied. Well, right? absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the defense by many people was, well, you know, it was just a, a sign of the times or they were just applying laws at the times. But the fact is they were applying laws differently to this community than to others and in real significant and destructive ways. And, you know, many of the people that I spoke to, they've been impacted for the rest of their lives. So it's not about the laws at the time, but how the laws are enacted. And I think that's that's something that we have to think about even today. Some of that hasn't changed. Well, I think that's that is sort of the, the cusp of how laws do change is when people recognize that there's a difference between what's right and what's wrong and what's actually in the law. And when they're following the law and it's still wrong, that's when a, a law needs to change. But when they're following the law inconsistently, that's even worse. Absolutely. Like there was no, uh, no other community that were asked about very intimate detail and disturbing details about sexual practices. There's no other community that had been asked those types of questions in a interrogation. And so clearly those laws were being applied differently. And again, the impact on, on these individuals are lifelong um, devastation for many. Can you relate this to the first Trudeau's comments about we don't belong in the bedrooms of Canadians? The view we take here is that uh there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And I think that, uh, you know, what's done in private between adults uh, doesn't concern the criminal code. It's when it becomes public, this is a different matter. Um, was that enough at the time or is this going way beyond? Well, certainly that was enough at that time because that was a leading statement by a government official anywhere in the world. 
And that really, uh, really reflected what Canada has been expected to be over all of these years. I think, uh, you know, sometimes we hear a lot of people questioning why are apologies even necessary? Um, why apologize for all of these things? But truthfully, when, when I am sitting in the gallery of the House of Commons and Prime Minister Trudeau is reading those words and you see the reaction, you feel the reaction of the people who have waited a lifetime to hear those words, saying I'm sorry, saying I apologize matters in ways that, that few other words do. So what did it mean for you? It meant to me that um, I could honour my community and use the many privileges that I've had in my life. You know, yes, I transition. I'm a transgender woman. I've experienced my fair oppression in my life, but but I have a lot of privilege when I come to these things. And I get that in in my role in in society and and the communities that I'm involved in and the leadership roles I've been asked to take. And that comes with an obligation as well. And I, I believe that for me, I was you know, my goal in going into this work was to truly honor my community. And I believe I did that. And I think that's what it comes down to. When I, when I met the, a few people after the apology and I just felt again that they finally heard those words they needed to hear, I couldn't ask for a better reward than in that moment. That's fantastic. So what was the process like? Who else was there with you? Right. We had uh, people out with lived experiences. We had people representing various intersections of the LGBTQ2S community, including people of color, two-spirit community. Um, we had people from across Canada with, with various uh, expertise. And then through that, we also had connections for our own communities across Canada. We were able to do a series of consultations and, and really come together to have those conversations. We, we met uh, many times in person in Ottawa. We had met many um, times on, on the phone to review uh, a lot of the feedback. We wanted to make sure that we got this right. And I think one of the most profound things for me, what happened is you want to go into these things to feel heard, right? You truly want to be heard and understood. And so it was important for us that we got to read a draft of the speech before it was read. And it was really important because language matters. Every detail matters. And so it, it took a lot of convincing, but we were able to work with the prime minister's office to have us review it. Now, it was in, in privacy, a lot of security. We had to go to our, uh, you know, for me, I had to go to Canada Place here and, and be um, supervised as I read the apology and, and take notes. And then we were able to meet with uh, the prime minister's speechwriter a few days later to review our what the suggestions that we had from that first draft. And then we didn't see it again until the apology was read five days later. That's and a lot of trust. <laughs> it is a lot of trust, and, and we put a lot of trust. And, and again, when, you know, when we sat in the, the gallery and, and Prime Minister Trudeau got up to, to begin the speech and, and the apology, we could almost check off everything that we had said in that meeting with the, with the speechwriter. And just one by one, we heard our words. We heard what we, what we needed to hear. We felt heard. And then again, those words that other people needed to hear. And, and I think that was something that is so important to me when we do advocacy work, when we have these kinds of conversations to ensure that the communities we're, we're working with feel heard and that, that carries meaning. And I've, I heard through that speech that we were heard. And that was something that was, uh, I'm not saying surprised, but really appreciated. Were you relieved? 
Yes, in many ways I, w- I was because you're like, oh, please, I hope that they included this. And they did. Yeah. Right? Almost word for word and some of those words, you know, words that I had written. And I think that's just something that I will always take away with me on how important it is to feel heard. So how how do you feel Canada has changed since then? It's been a year. Has anything changed? What What do you feel is different? I feel, as I have even before the apology, that more conversations are happening, more conversations like the one we're having in this podcast. That is something that is happening more and more. There's no question. You know, uh, recently they, you know, when the class action lawsuit was settled with all the people who have experienced, um, you know, a wrongful arrest and all those things, those are things that people needed to have addressed. There's still a lot of things that have to happen, though. You know, we think about our correction system and, and trans people in, in the systems and how, uh, you know, many people of color in our community are, are treated in the legal system and overrepresented in, in many instances. So I think there's a lot of work to do. Um, and as that visibility happens, as the conversations continue to happen, of course, so does the backlash. And so we are always very mindful that not everybody is there on their journey. And sometimes that can be very, very challenging. You know, just recently in Calgary, uh, a trans woman was, was punched in the face on the train, specifically because she's trans. I mean, so those are things we are, we continue to be reminded, although we've made con- considerable progress, we were reminded that some of us are still fighting for, for our very lives with our lives in many cases. And so that's something we cannot lose sight of. Absolutely true. With your lives is is uh, definitely true. I mean, and, and whether that's through reputation or through your job or through actual physical, like you were saying, physical contact, it's it's quite, um, it's something that I think all Canadians need to be reminded of. And it reminds me of that the meme that says, rights are not about pie. If, if you get rights, doesn't mean I get less pie. <laughs> right. It's just it's, about adding more pie. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. I don't get less pie. Everybody just gets pie. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, um, something that that I think we all need to keep in mind. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was uh, at the beginning you had said something about, you know, Canada. This is how we visualize Canada. Well, how do you think this apology has um, affected Canada's status in the world? Right. You know, I've been again with with some of the privileges that I've had. I was involved in the Human Rights Act amendments and Bill C sixteen, and and speaking to the Senate on on trying to. motivate and convince people to vote for for the bill which did pass and we're you know just passed a year of that anniversary as well and you know when I when I spoke about it then I continue to do so today you know these are really strong messages to the to the entire world that that we value diversity that we celebrate all the ways in which we are different from each other that Canada should be a beacon of hope for people who are not uh, who do not feel safe and who are not safe in their own countries We are all worthy of love and deserving of respect. And whether you discover your truth at 6, at 16, or at 60, who you are is valid. To members of the LGBTQ2 communities, young and old, here in Canada and around the world, you are loved, and we support you. It tells the world, it tells Canadians, it tells marginalized communities that you are welcome here, you belong here, and the government has your back. And when they say that, now we can hold the government accountable to having our back. But I think more importantly, it's, it's a message to outside the world that, that we have to follow through about being a safe place and a beacon for people to come to. 
Right. And just because the government says so doesn't make it so in reality. Well, no, and that's really important because at the end of the day, these are words that were spoken, uh, words written on a paper or in legislation, but mean very little unless they are followed up with significant action that, uh, that we all have to hold ourselves and each other accountable to creating a safe and inclusive environment for everybody. We need to stand up when things are being said, when a abusive or offensive or hurtful language is spoken, or when behavior is done, we need to stand up with each other for each other because it is in that silence that we condone those behaviors. And we can't do that anymore. We need to stand with each other. People need that support. Yeah, that whole attitude of boys will be boys, or it was the thing at the time, or that attitude has to start to change among well, at it, the it, grassroots. Absolutely, and I think people who think that it was uh, that at the time look at it through a very much a, a privileged lens, mm-hmm. right? Because absolutely. the people who were experiencing the injustices knew it was wrong, right? Right. So I think it's some of these things have always been wrong, and so today we need to to recognize that. Yeah, it's the fear of being able to speak. Out and, right. now, and now maybe the fear is a little less with this openness uh, from our government? Um, not always, because again, because it's much more visible and the conversations are happening, so does the backlash. And it's very common with, with any civil rights movement. We saw that with the suffrages, right? The uh, suffrage movement when uh, you know, the most violent time for women in this country was after the vote. When we look at the civil rights movement in the United States, the, again, the, the most violent time for, for people of color in the United States was, was after. And so that's the period that we're in right now. I mean, and I, I'd like to think that that will peak and fall. But, you know, we, we have to be vigilant and we have to be strong that we, we can't just say, wow, you know, we received an apology. Things are good and rest on our laurels because it's now that the work is. Mm-hmm. That was the easy part. Well, let's talk about the work. What what do you see is maybe one thing that we can all do or maybe what is the most important thing that needs to happen right now? We have to really reflect. Do we live in a, a community, in a society? Do we live within even our own homes where offensive jokes go unchecked, where biases go unchallenged, where dangerous rhetoric goes unquestioned? We all have a responsibility to, to be an ally to each other. Uh, we all have an obligation to be an ally. Ally is an action word that doesn't just happen uh, once a year to show up at a pride parade. It happens every day. It's an action word that we, that we take seriously every single day of our lives. That's the one thing we can all do. We don't need a government to tell us to be kind and respectful and compassionate to each other. Um, it helps to have the language to support it through legislation. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to each person that's listening to this podcast. That's wonderful. Marnie, thanks so much for being here with us today. No, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to have these conversations with you. Let's, let's continue these conversations. So, Marnie, will you help me close out the show? I'd be happy to. First, we want to say thanks for listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that you enjoyed what you heard. And be sure to check our show notes for the episode. We'll have links to our Vital Signs report, as well as a few other links for you. Please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is a big help, and we always appreciate your feedback. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. I'm Marnie Panis. And I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.